Hello, and welcome to Giants of Gene Therapy. I'm Hans-Peter Kiem, president of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. My guest today is another true giant in our field, Dr. Kathy High. She's president of therapeutics at AskBio. Before that, she was president and head of research and development at Spark Therapeutics, where she oversaw the development, approval, and launch of Lexterna, the first AV gene therapy approved for use in, in the United States and the first in vivo gene therapy. Dr. High spent many years on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where she was also an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. She's published quite extensively in the space of gene therapy and received many highly prestigious awards for her work. Dr. High is also a past president of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. Dr. High is a physician scientist with extensive ex expertise in hematology and gene therapy and was one of the first to truly take gene therapy all the way from the bench to bedside. Welcome, Dr. High. Thank you. So let me start with growing up in North Carolina. How? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was the oldest of three daughters, and my maternal grandfather was a chemist who eventually became the head of a research unit at what is now Lockheed Martin. It was Martin Marietta in those days. And uh, so sometimes on the weekends, I would go with him to his office, which was adjacent to the chemistry lab. He was a chemist. And my own father was very interested, actually more in engineering than in chemistry. But when I was 10 years old, Santa Claus brought me a chemistry set. <laughs> and my hmm. father actually carried out many of those experiments with me uh, out of the manual. There were, there were instructions for over 100 chemistry experiments. And, uh, and I, was very, I was very impressed with the quality of that chemistry set. And uh, as you know, I eventually went on to major in chemistry in college at Harvard. And then I had a great deal of difficulty deciding what to do next. I considered going to graduate school in chemistry, but I also thought about medical school. And after a one-year stint working in a research lab at Mass General, after college, I decided that medical school would be okay. So that's what I did. <laughs> so were you then the only one other than your grandfather, you know, pursuing sort of science and medicine? Um, we, well, of my three sisters, I was yeah. certainly the only one. <laughs> so maybe tell us a little bit about your time then, you know, um, you know, at Harvard and uh, when you first started uh, thinking about medicine. Well, I have to say that um, I really started out majoring in chemistry and physics, and uh, I, I eventually narrowed to chemistry only. I really enjoyed working in the chemistry lab, and I was not particularly interested in biology, but in my last year of college, I took one year of biology so that I would have the option to apply to medical school if I wanted to. Um, and then, as I said, I, I took this year working in a lab at uh, Mass General. They worked on homocystinuria, and the head of the lab was a physician scientist. And the job that I was hired to do was to um, synthesize compounds. They were basically metabolites of homocysteine uh, that they were then injecting into rabbits. And it, it was really... Uh, I would say, I would say that I owe much to the director of that lab, who was a pathologist, uh, Dr. Kilmer McCulley, because I think he desensitized me to a lot of things <laughs> in medicine um, and made biology more palatable to me. And um, so, really, it was during that year that I decided to apply to medical school, and I did. After the first two years of medical school, I decided that I had made a mistake and that what I really wanted to do was go back to the chemistry lab. So I was in medical school at UNC Chapel Hill, and I found a terrific chemistry laboratory that worked on the polymerization of the vinyl monomers. So things like um, 
methylmethacrylate, which becomes polymethylmethacrylate. And uh, anyway, so I, I took a year off from medical school. In those days, it was very difficult to do that. It was not a, it was not a maneuver that was looked on with favor. But, you know, I wanted to work in the chemistry lab for a year just to sort of get my get my bearings again. And it took me half of third year to get the permission I needed to <laughs> half of third year of medical school to get the, all the permissions I needed to take the year off. So I had, in fact, done two and a half years of medical school by the time I had talked to every dean and assistant dean and associate dean and so forth. And everyone had signed off that I could take a year out and work in this chemistry lab. And I I really had a great time. And I had a first author paper in one of the journals of the American Chemical Society. And I decided, you know, I, I really should just go to graduate school in chemistry. I made a mistake. And, and you know, honestly, the first two years of medical school are really more like learning a foreign language than, <laughs> than like studying science. So anyway, so I, I decided that I would um, leave medical school and go to graduate school in chemistry. So I went to the head of the lab and I said, would you write a recommendation for me to do that? And he said, yes, I'd be happy to do that. But let me explain something to you. Once you have a terminal degree, no one cares what it is. And the fastest path for you is to just go back and finish medical school. And he said, you did a great job in the lab. I'll help you get a good postdoc. And then if you feel that you have deficiencies in your background, you can take courses while you're a postdoc in a chemistry lab. So I thought, okay, well, that makes sense to me. So then I went back to medical school. And it turned out that the, I don't know whether it was that I had gotten older or whether the best rotations were the ones I had not done before I left but the ones that I went back to were pediatrics and medicine. And it turned out that I really liked both of those a great deal and medicine more than pediatrics. And so I abandoned the plan to go to graduate school in chemistry and decided to do a residency in internal medicine instead. So I did that. And then I thought, well, I would like to subspecialize, but I was trying to think of a field where my background in chemistry would be helpful. So I, I looked very carefully at hematology, endocrinology, and rheumatology, immunology, because I thought those were all fields where my background in chemistry might be useful, maybe. And I decided the one that was the best fit, where I was most likely to get some mileage from my chemistry background, was hematology. And so I, I applied to a number of programs, and I, I went to Yale where I worked in Ed Benz's lab. My first attending was Bernie Forger. So I worked with great uh, titans of the hemoglobinopathy world during my hematology training. Um, but because I had been a medicine resident at UNC Chapel Hill and they had a very strong coagulation group there, I began to think toward the end of my training about turning my skills in molecular biology that I had really developed in the research lab at Yale to problems related to coagulation. In 1982, the gene for factor IX was cloned. Uh, and in 1985, the gene for factor VIII was cloned. And so I thought to myself that it would be possible to, just as the globin gene people had looked at all the mutations that cause thalassemia and so forth, that it would be possible now to look at the mutations that caused hemophilia. So I took my first faculty job at UNC Chapel Hill and my research lab did exactly what I said. We were looking at mutations that caused hemophilia B. Uh, so we were <laughs> in those days, which was pre-PCR, as hard as that may be to believe, uh, we were actually making libraries from patients with uh, hemophilia and screening libraries with factor IX clones and isolating the clones and then doing the sequencing and so forth. So, um, and then the other project that I was interested in there was to define the defect in the hemophilia B dog colony and then see if we could use that as a vehicle for doing experiments in gene therapy. And so by then there were, well, not when we were cloning the normal canine factor nine gene. But by the time we got to the 
mutant canine factor nine gene, there was PCR. There were no PCR machines. So we were moving test tubes from one water bath to another, but it did work. And it was a lot easier than making, uh, than making libraries from canine liver, which is what we did to isolate the normal canine factor nine cDNA. Did you have a vision back then or thoughts how a path to the clinic would look like? Well, <laughs> no, I thought I, I could think as far as if we could cure it in hemophilic mice, if we could cure hemophilia in hemophilic dogs. But I don't think I was thinking much at that point about what would happen if we did get cures in hemophilic dogs. I mean, I knew it would be a stepping stone, but I didn't know how much would be involved from the stepping stone to the next step. <laughs> as it turned out, that was quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. You left for the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Yes, that's right. So actually, after I'd been on the faculty at UNC for four years, I got an offer to join the faculty at Penn in the Department of Pathology. And I thought about it very, very, very carefully, but I did not have tenure yet. And I knew that if I stayed at UNC, I would get tenure. And my lab there was going really very well. And in addition to that, <laughs> I had two children and I lived literally across the street from the medical center at UNC. So my daily commute was five minutes there and five minutes back. And to be perfectly honest, I was afraid that if I had to add 30 minutes there and 30 minutes back, I would somehow drown. And I think people with small children can identify with what I'm saying here. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, for, for a number of reasons, I, I just felt like in the end, this the time was not right. And then to my surprise, three years later, a different department at Penn came back and asked me again <laughs> if I would be interested in joining them. This was the Department of Pediatrics. And I, I have great respect for pediatricians, but I had no qualifications in that space. But they were asking me to take a position where my only clinical duties would be directing the hematology and coagulation laboratories at uh, CHOP, the Children's Hospital. And uh, I was already doing that at UNC. So I felt that I was um, reasonably well qualified for that. Mm -hmm. Honestly, at that time, we were well into the AIDS era in hemophilia. And of course, in 1992, we, we really had no drugs except for AZT as a single agent. And as many listeners will know, as a single agent, although some patients uh, had a therapeutic effect, it, it really was not doing what you would hope uh, for the HIV population. And, and that was becoming very challenging at UNC where there was a large hemophilia population. And what I was finding for um, my own work was that now when I went on service, which was only the coagulation service, I would really hardly see the lab for the month that I was on service because there were so many AIDS patients who were coming in with serious infections and they needed many procedures and their hemophilia had to be taken care of. And, and as you know, antibiotics uh, are of only limited utility when the patient does not have uh, T cells. Right. So this made the offer from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia look particularly attractive since I was not, since I was not going to be attending on the war. <laughs> <laughs> and my and the work that we were doing had become very, very competitive. There were a number of people now working on trying to establish proof of concept for gene therapy um, in hemophilia. So this was the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And so I think all of those things together combined to motivate, motivate me to accept the offer at Children's Hospital. And, you know, now we had three children and I was still going to have to make that commute <laughs> because you can't live across from the medical center at Children's Hospital. You can't live across the street from the medical center. But, you know, I thought, OK, well, I'm going to try. And fortunately for me, some of the people from the lab were willing to come with me 
to Philadelphia, a really good hematology slash blood banker postdoc, and a really good graduate student. And so, you know, we came in, we set up the lab, and we we got going again pretty quickly. So that was good. And of course, the great thing about Penn then was that Bill Kelly had recruited a number of people who were interested in gene therapy. And so there was really critical mass uh, of colleagues who were interested in the same kinds of questions. So that was a, that was actually a great thing that I had not fully anticipated the benefit of. Hey, have you always thought about AV as the most likely uh, delivery platform? Oh, okay. So that's a good question. So when I started doing work in gene transfer, <clears throat> I was totally agnostic. And um, we did work with retroviral vectors. So we made retroviral vectors. Uh, we did work with adenoviral vectors and we did work with AAV. <laughs> but the one that worked by far the best for us was AAV. And so we began more and more to turn our attention to just focusing on AAV. And with one of the um, first postdocs who came to our lab at uh, CHOP, Roland Herzog, who's now the editor of Molecular Therapy, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Roland was the first author on the paper uh, that showed the use of an AAV vector to bring about a therapeutic effect in a mouse, in a hemophilic mouse, uh, you know, using actually initially an intramuscular injection. And he extended that to the hemophilia B dog model. And we were still collaborating with um, the people that we had originally collaborated with at UNC to define the defect in the dogs. And so um, we also were interested to see whether we could infuse AAV into the liver of the dogs. And we were able to show that we actually got much more robust expression from doing that mm -hmm. compared to doing intramuscular injections. But when we got ready to do the first human trial, we felt that going intramuscularly would have the advantage that we could inject a defined muscle. And then if everything went wrong, we could excise that muscle. And it turns out that the vastus lateralis, which is one of the four bellies of the quadriceps, can actually, you can excise that muscle and you'll still have a stable knee and a functional quadriceps. Mm -hmm. So uh, we started out by doing a clinical trial, injecting that muscle. So on muscle biopsies that we carried out after that, we could see that we were expressing factor nine by immunohistochemistry. We could see that the gene was there on a Southern blot. You know, we, we could see that we were, uh, we definitely transferred in the gene that we were trying to transfer in and that it was being expressed. But it turned out that, Factor nine has a very high affinity for collagen four and that it was sticking in the interstitial spaces around the muscle fibers mm. in the extracellular matrix. However, our safety data in that muscle trial was quite good. So that was what emboldened us to move forward to do a liver trial, which had not been done before. And I was worried about it, but all of our animal data suggested that it would be safe. So we worked out a dose escalation uh, protocol with the FDA, and we started at a dose that we thought was probably, you know, subtherapeutic, maybe a log subtherapeutic. And then we went up by five-fold intervals to hit the therapeutic dose. And uh, actually, it did turn out to be safe at the low doses, although we got a surprise with the injection of the first patient, which was that we were collecting body fluids and looking for vector sequences, and the semen turned up positive. And uh, so that stopped the trial for about a year. We developed an animal model. A lot of that work was done by Valder Aruda, who was a postdoc in the lab. And um, we were able to show that in a dose and time-dependent fashion, the semen would clear. 
So we amended the protocol to require barrier contraception and we were able to go to start back again. And then we went up through uh, the first dose, the second dose, safe, but not driving levels, adequate levels of expression. But then when we got to the third dose, uh, the patients at, at two weeks, his factor nine level was 12%. So we thought, well, you know, we're in great shape now. Uh, but then after about five weeks, his liver function test started to rise and they peaked at about six weeks and then they slowly started to return to normal. But with that return of the transaminases to normal, the factor nine level began to slowly decline. And eventually all of the numbers went back to where they were at the beginning. So the transaminases were normal and the factor nine level was zero. Hmm. The patient had good expression for about eight weeks. I mean, it started falling at about six weeks and by 12 weeks it was gone. So, so at um, what point during that time, Kathy, uh, did you start working with Gene Bennett? Oh, well, during that time, we were not working with Gene. We were working with a great uh, AV gene, gene therapy company on the West Coast called Avigen. And I really liked those guys. And they had put a lot of um, resources into vector manufacturing. And the reason I first started working with them was that it was the only way we could get enough vector to infuse 20 kilograms right. of flake dog. So I, I really thought that they were terrific. And um, I also thought that Gene's work was terrific. So I told the people at Avigen, you, you got to listen to my friend about the work that she has done in dogs with low vision. Yeah, You're going to be really impressed. So Gene went out there and gave a talk. And, and I think the scientists were excited. But the business people said, no, no, this indication is too small. We're not going to do this. <laughs> they only wanted to do big indications. And I, I did say to the CEO then, I said, yeah, but how much money do you spend on public relations? Just spend it on this instead. But anyway, I could not convince them to do that. But then, you know, while we were trying to sort out, it turned out that that loss of expression had to do with, with an immune response to the capsid. And we worked all that out um, with a lot of help from Hildegund Ertel, uh, mm -hmm. who was an immunologist at the Wistar Institute. And, you know, it was not easy to find, to interest an immunologist in this pro in these problems at that point. It seemed to me that nearly every immunologist on the campus worked on HIV. <laughs> <laughs> and I could not get anybody interested in immune responses to AAV. Uh, but Gundy is actually also a physician scientist, and she appreciated the key role that the immune response was playing here in blocking what was otherwise a beautiful result. So uh, we developed a program project grant together, and you know we felt that, and, and we got the trial back on track. The FDA stopped it after that uh, transaminase elevation. We got the trial back on track. But then, you know, I think that one aspect of my work as a physician scientist that, let's say, cuts both ways, I tend to be very focused on what I'm doing, which is good. On the other hand, I tend to disregard what's going on around me. Hmm. And even though I was serving on national committees that were looking at these things, I, I think I failed to appreciate the ramifications for me of the high-profile adverse events that occurred in gene therapy in the late 1990s and early 2000s. But eventually, Avigen, which had been making our clinical-grade vector, uh, could not raise money to do gene therapy anymore, and they turned away from it. And so then the our work was going to come to a halt unless I could identify a source of clinical-grade vector. And I thought that maybe the best thing to do would be to set it up ourselves at Children's Hospital. But uh, gene therapy was receiving quite a bit of negative press at that point. So I was worried about asking the hospital CEO, Steve Altschuler, if he would find the resources to let me set up clinical grade vector production in the hospital. But I thought, well, I have to start there. 
So I went and asked him and he said, okay, well, give me, give me some time to think about it. Come back and see me in a week. <laughs> and to my everlasting surprise, this was in 2004 and there was not yeah. much encouraging news about gene therapy then. He remember that, yes. <laughs> went back to see him and he said, well, this is what I think. You always tell me that there are no problems here that cannot be solved. And if that's true, gene therapy will be very important for children's hospitals, which bear the brunt of genetic disease. So he said, I'm going to find the resources for you, but I have one condition. And I said, what was that? And he said, you cannot spend all the money working on hemophilia. You have to work on some other diseases that affect the pediatric population. And I said, okay, great, great. I know one. (laughs) (laughs) So I went over to see Gene and said, you know, do you think we could work on this trial together and do it at Children's Hospital? And she said, yes. And so in 2005, we started to work together to optimize the construct that, oh, I should back up and say this. I was very fortunate to recruit some of the key people from Avigen. And Fraser Wright and Guang Chu came and set up the manufacturing facility and process development. And Jennifer Wellman came and did uh, the regulatory work around our trials. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was great. And at first, I I was worried about trying to recruit people from San Francisco to Philadelphia. But later I realized that when you have to do that, who do you get? The people who care more about the work than where they live. (laughs) So that was good. Um, And so anyway, then uh, Gene's lab and our lab worked together to try to optimize the construct, to try to complete all the GLP tox work. We we decided that we would take all the empties out of the final formulation because the injection site was so small. We felt we could not take the competition from the empties for receptors. And we worked with, actually the CHOP IRB helped us a lot with this. We worked to make a presentation to the RAC that would let us include children from an early stage of the work, even in phase one, two, because Gene's data had shown that in this dog model, and of course, all the dogs have the same mutation, but um, in this dog model, the earlier she intervened, the better the result. Mm-hmm. And past a certain point, she could not get a therapeutic effect. So the uh, FDA and the RAC did allow us to include children. We had to, the first three patients in the phase one, two study had to be adults. Uh, But after that, based on the safety data, we were able to enroll children, even in the phase one, two study. We did end up having to change the starting dose because we wanted to include children. So the uh, regulations governing the inclusion of children And clinical trials say that if there's more than minimal risk to the child, which going to the operating room and getting general anesthesia and subretinal injection would definitely be more than minimal risk, um, then each child who is enrolled must have the prospect of direct benefit. Mm -hmm. Again, when we did this, uh, there had been one patient in England, an adult, who had received a subretinal injection, but that was the world's experience. So we initially proposed a low dose, but it was a dose at which 7% of dogs recovered vision. But when, so the FDA agreed to that, but when the CHOP IRB saw it, they said, no, you have to start at a dose where most children recover, most dogs recover vision. Right. So we had to bump the dose up by a log. And fortunately, our safety data were good and the FDA agreed to let us start at a higher dose. So we started at a higher dose. Uh, we did the dose escalation study. We thought once we did the dose escalation study, we'd be able to go to the pivotal study. But the FDA said, no, we want to see what happens when you inject the contralateral. Yeah. We were only injecting one. Arm. So then we had to go back and do another phase one, two study where the 12 patients in the phase, the, the dose escalation study underwent injection of the contralateral with the dose that we expected to take into phase three. And that was all safe too. 
So then, so then we were ready to do phase three. And we, um, fortunately for us in 2011, when we were contemplating the design of the phase three study, the FDA held an advisory committee to provide input on what the design of the phase three study should be like and what would be good endpoints because there were no approved products for inherited retinal dystrophies. And so there was no consensus on what the primary endpoint should be. So they had about 10 experts there, ophthalmologists, vitro retinal surgeons, and so forth. And so you can imagine that we got many different opinions right. yeah. about what we should use as the primary endpoint and what the phase three trial design should be. And I would say really we we um, mostly worked this out in consultation with the FDA, but mm-hmm. the ideal scientific control is to inject one eye and use the contralateralize the control. It has the same mutation. It's at approximately the same stage of degeneration. It's the perfect scientific control. Uh, but the regulators on both sides of the Atlantic rejected that trial design because they said no one would be using the product that way. The um, historical control data, which were very robust, for example, for Zolgensma, they were able to use historical control data um, for their trial. This is a drug for spinal muscular atrophy. Right, right. But the but the data for RPE sixty five deficiency was mostly single institution case reports. It was it was really not something that we could use as a control, and so that really left us with a randomized controlled trial design yeah. and. You know, we were worried that patients who were randomized to the control group would drop out of the study. Because I would say that most of these patients who who volunteer for clinical trials, like gene therapy trials, understand a great deal about their disease. And most of these people understood that, you know, over time, their vision would decline. And so nobody wanted to be randomized to the control group, although the design was that after one year, you could cross over and get both eyes injected. So fortunately for us, people did not drop out of the control group. And uh, I think all but one patient who was randomized to the control group stayed in. Uh And so uh, the intervention group got one eye injected, and then about a week later, they get the other eye injected. And um, and so at the end of one year, the patients in the control group had undergone all the same evaluations at baseline, 30 days, 90 days, 180 days, and 365 days. We compared the results at 365 days on the mobility assay, which was the primary endpoint. That was a separate test that we had developed and then had to validate in a separate non-interventional study yeah, yeah, in yeah. both normal-sighted subjects and children and adults with inherited retinal dystrophies. But the characteristics of the test of the mobility test turned out to be quite robust. Um, they correlated with visual acuity and visual fields and light sensitivity. And we worked all that out in that separate non-interventional study. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was very much a test of functional vision. How did a person function in an activity of daily living, namely navigating? So during that process, just want to skip ahead a little bit, Kathy. Did you think about leaving academia and going to industry? Well, I didn't think about it very much, honestly. But then we started to get, we, we actually got uh, inquiries from large biotech companies, other people with experience in rare disease, and they would come and, and, and actually also some big pharma companies, and they would come and uh, audit all of our clinical regulatory correspondence, manufacturing records, and so forth, and then put a term sheet in front of the hospitals. So uh, that was in about 2012, and that was about that was when we were assembling everything we needed to assemble to start the phase three trial for RPE 65. So then the CEO of the hospital, the same one who had funded the vector production facility, called me in and said, "Um, Dr. High, what's going to happen at the phase three trial works because we're a hospital and we don't commercialize products. (laughs) (laughs) 
And uh, so then, you know, he actually appointed a subcommittee of the board of Children's Hospital. And these were people who had experience with life sciences investing and and that sort of thing. And they they began to look in a very organized way at potential options. And I spent a fair amount of time with them. And um, I felt pretty strongly that I did not want to turn the programs over to a large pharma or a large biotech just because um, this had been a very disappointing experience um, a decade earlier when as soon as there were these high-profile adverse events, pharma and biotech pretty much pulled out of gene therapy. And I was afraid that we might yet uncover additional problems um, before we got to the finish line with either hemophilia or uh, inherited retinal dystrophies. And I didn't want to be in a situation where the programs got closed down because, you know, and I felt it would be much safer if we were in a gene therapy company. Mm -hmm. But of course, all the gene therapy companies were gone by then. (laughs) So we began to look at the gene therapy companies from the 1990s, that is, were gone by then. So we began to look at the idea of, of spinning out part of our unit at the Children's Hospital as a standalone gene therapy company and putting those assets into the company. And um, so as that work progressed, um, in 2013, March of 2013, Spark was uh, formed, mm-hmm. Spark Therapeutics. I had just gotten my Howard Hughes position renewed for another five years. So I wanted to try to see if I could you know, provide advice to the company, but not go into it <laughs> because I wanted to keep my Howard Hughes position. Um, but after about six months, I realized that I, I realized that there were very few people with expertise in gene therapy drug development. I think the um, spin out of ideas from the laboratory to create companies uh, is something that many people who are use investigators have done. But then they usually had a cadre of people who had familiarity, for example, with monoclonal antibodies or something like that, right. that could populate the company. And, you know, after a while, I, I became convinced that um, that was not going to work out well for us. That was one thing. The second thing was there were people that I really, really, really wanted to recruit to the company. And I was pretty sure they wouldn't come unless I went, <laughs> you know, that's the put your put your money where your mouth is. Right phenomenon. And I have to say, honestly, there was a a very heightened awareness of conflict of interest issues around gene therapy, particularly at Penn. Right. (laughs) And as important as good legal work is to any company, I did not want to spend this part of my career talking to conflict of interest lawyers. (laughs) So all of those things together, but mostly I just thought, what if I don't go and the programs don't get across the finish line? Then how am I going to feel? Right, right. That was, I think, the thing that swayed me the most was that, hey, hey, I've spent my adult career working on gene therapy. And now, because you'd rather be a Howard Hughes investigator than somebody at a biotech startup, (laughs) what, you're going to hang back now? So that's what did you ever regret then once you were in the company? No, 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 I did not at all. I mean, because of course, what we had been doing at CHOP and what we had had the latitude to do there, and and for this, I'm always grateful to Steve Altshuler, was to actually write job descriptions for a lot of jobs that you need in in Mm -hmm. industry and set them up in the hospital, which was great. But really, when it comes to drug development, it's hard to beat the structure of a company. And, and so I, I did not regret that because there were many things that, that needed to be done that we were just not optimally set up to do in our unit at the Children's Hospital. 
And uh, so, I mean, all of the things that needed to be done to bring AAV manufacturing from clinical standards to commercial standards, all of the lot release assays that had to be developed, all of that work. I mean, we really, we needed a company to do all that. Right. So were you surprised that Luxterna was then the first gene therapy that was approved versus, you know, gene therapy for hemophilia? Well, as you can see, hemophilia is <laughs> a good deal uh, longer to do. Um, but it happened. Think, yes, of course. <laughs> yes. I, I don't think I was terribly surprised just because I'll tell you what. Um, going up against the human immune response is not for the faint hearted. Right. Uh, and the great thing about inherited retinal dystrophies is that you can administer small doses to a relatively immunoprivileged site. And we sought immune responses very carefully in the trials for Luxterna. Mm -hmm. And we just did not see them. Mm -hmm. So I think if you remove the difficulties of the immune response, um, the human immune response to AAV, you, you solved a really big problem. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, the way that that was solved for hemophilia B was to use a high specific activity factor nonvariant that allowed everyone to drop their doses. Mm -hmm. And, all of these human immune responses to AAV are dose dependent. So the lower the dose you can give, the more likely you are to avoid any kind of uh, untoward response. And it just, you know, so in effect, the hemophilia trials had to start again after people realized that and, and figured out that they could solve that problem, at least partly by incorporating Factor non Padua. Right. So, so what do you think are the biggest challenges right now, sort of um, for clinical application of gene therapy, uh, maybe just starting with AAV based gene therapies? Well, I, I mean, I think that, so first of all, I would say I'm excited about some developments over the last couple mm -hmm. of years. I think that the major obstacles remain the human immune response and you know, commercial manufacturing has been a bottleneck for the field or manufacturing in general has been a bottleneck for the AAV field. So I, I would say those are some of the main problems. But what I found very exciting over the last couple of years is that there have been a couple of different groups, both academic and in industry, that have begun to screen very large libraries of synthetic AAVs. And this has yielded some capsids that allow one to drop doses dramatically. So, for example, Kate Therapeutics uh, developed a synthetic AAV uh, that will let you, in a, in a non-human primate at least, drop doses for... Uh, AAV transduction of skeletal muscle by 30-fold compared to AAV9. So the a lot of the gene therapies for Duchenne muscular dystrophy now are making use of AAV9, uh, and they have run into problems that are occasioned by the very high doses that they use, including complement-induced injury um, that has resulted in renal failure and thrombocytopenia and it reverses with Solaris, but it's certainly scarier when it happens. Right. Uh, but you know, if you're able to, so if those findings in non-human primates from Kate therapeutics translate well to humans and you can drop the dose for muscular dystrophies by 30 fold, well, that's a very important development. Mm -hmm. So in general, if you sort of had that, crystal ball. Where do you think we're headed with gene therapy in general? Well, I think that one thing that's challenging to figure out is exactly what the balance will be between gene therapy and gene editing as we move forward. I think that some of the results that have already been published by Intelia would suggest that 
uh, gene editing, at least the part if, where you only have to target, not insert, <laughs> can be done quite efficiently in the human liver. Mm -hmm. So will there be more of those um, indications, not just for uh, the Intellia paper, I think was about uh, amyloidosis, transthyretin amyloidosis, but um, obviously people are pursuing this for cardiovascular targets as well that they can manipulate through liver-expressed genes. I think that the work that's going on with these very large AAV libraries may allow us to access more efficiently tissues that we don't transduce very efficiently with AAV now. Mm -hmm. So I think we may see uh, broader indications. So that's exciting. And I... You know, I, I'm very excited by some of the gene editing work, for example, around sickle cell disease and thalassemia. Yep, yep. Absolutely. These are fantastic results. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since, I mean, since the many years that I've been in hematology, you know, we, we've made, let's say, only limited progress in therapeutics for sickle cell mm -hmm. disease. And to me, you know, I think if we could devise a way, perhaps through one of these C-kit antibodies to do... Uh, conditioning mm -hmm. that is not quite so challenging as the conditioning regimens that we use now, challenging for the patient and for the bone marrow transplant doctor. And of course, if some of the work goes forward in in vivo genome editing of hematopoietic stem cells, mm -hmm. then you know would it would it be possible to address the 100,000 sickle cell patients in the United States? Uh, and the uh, millions of sickle cell patients in Africa um, with a therapy mm -hmm. that would require some short period of high intensity monitoring, followed by achievement of a new state of health that would require uh, far less medical monitoring and intervention. I agree. These are very exciting developments, you know, especially also the in vivo approaches, as you mentioned. I do want to, for the last few minutes, you now kind of switch uh, gears a little bit. And I know not everyone in your family um, is pursuing a science career. Your daughter, <laughs> for example. Well, one of my daughters um, went to medical <laughs> school at Penn and was a medicine intern at the Brigham and then a dermatology resident at Penn, and now she's on the faculty there. So this, I would say, I would describe as the child that we expected to have. <laughs> My husband is an internist, too. So our second daughter, uh, however, from a very young age, had clearly been born with or bitten by the acting bug, and she was fiercely determined to become an actor from a very young age. And I have to say that I was skeptical about that as a career choice because most of the people I knew personally or children of uh, people that I knew who had tried to pursue a career in the arts had found it very difficult to uh, break through and to really make a living at that sort of work. And I, I just think that the odds are really against you. And of course, I had no way to tell how good she was, right? I mean, it was a little, first of all, I don't know anything about acting. <laughs> Secondly, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to be completely objective when it's your child. <laughs> but, but she, she got some very strong, positive feedback from the time she was quite young. Uh, from the time she was really only eight or 10 years old. And um, and then when she, so she came close to getting parts in Hollywood when she was 12 years old. And then when she was 15, she actually did land a role in a movie and moved out to Venice Beach for four and a half months of her 10th grade year and was tutored on the set and so forth to make this movie. Um, and I think then, you know, she, so by then she was getting a lot of external, you know, <laughs> external validation of her, um, potential in that field. So, 
we did uh, force her to go to college. Um, but fortunately, she was able to go to Columbia. So she was able to do some acting even while she was in school. And uh, now she's 34 years old and she has, uh, she has a very nice career in, uh, on Broadway, on television. So, you know, the skepticism of her mother was not well-founded. <laughs> yeah, no, she's very successful. Uh, yes. <laughs> So are, yes. are you watching the shows and movies? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, of, of course, we, we've <laughs> we've seen all those things many times. <laughs> um, okay, so I'd like to do two more questions. Um, Kathy, what, what advice do you have for, for trainees and early career hematologists nowadays? Well, I think I would say the most important thing that I could tell anybody is, you know, find something that you really like because... Uh, and that you really believe in and work on that because there will be many times when you feel like giving up. And certainly that was true for me. And there were, there were many times early in my career that I would decide that I, that I was not going to continue in a research career. Um, and, but I found that I would always say to myself, I'm going to quit as soon as I figure out why Hep G2 cells express every clotting factor except for factor nine. And then, you know, when every time I felt like quitting, I, there was always one more thing that was going to keep me at mm -hmm. it. And so I, I think that it's inevitable that you have setbacks and you get discouraged and um, you think like that. But if you're really interested in what you're doing, you know, then there's always one more thing you've got to get done and then after a while, you know, things look better. And so the most important thing is to find something that you really like and you really believe in. And I don't know how to tell people to find that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but do that. Do that because I think, you know, then that that is very passion. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So one last question. So what do you like to do when you're not working? Did you ever oh. learn that? that foreign language. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, wow. So the year after I left Spark, I, I actually did realize one of my great ambitions. I was able to attend the Middlebury Language Institute virtually because it was the <laughs> pandemic and study German. <laughs> so, you know, I, then I'm always hoping I can go back to do subsequent years there, but I got a very good background in the seven week course there. So, uh, well, and I like to read and I like to swim and, uh, I like to talk to my friends and my old trainees. And <laughs> so a few German trainees too. So <laughs> yes, I do. I do. And, uh, they were, one of them in particular was always trying to teach me German, not Roland. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, th thank you so, so much, Kathy. This was okay. really wonderful. Really, really appreciate it. Okay. All right. Well, Hans-Peter, thank you. I, I really enjoyed it.